Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, a conservative motion calling on the government to make a decision on Huawei passes in the House of Commons. The democratic world must acknowledge that the approach to China over the last two decades has not worked. In fact, the situation has only gotten worse in recent years. Tory MPs call for stricter rules after learning that Andrew Scheer employed members of his family. Here's what I think. <laughs> People probably should just have that judgment. Uh, I think probably it's fair of Canadians to expect that uh, elected representatives would um, avoid that kind of decision. And the health minister faces questions about why Canada has yet to approve home testing kits for COVID-19. We have regulators working around the clock assessing a variety of different kinds of uh, medical devices that are that are um, that, uh, that manufacturers have submitted for review and as soon as they're proven to be safe and effective then they would be approved. It's Thursday November 19th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John thank you for being with us. Morning Mark. So the House of Commons has passed a conservative motion calling on the government to make a decision about Huawei and whether to ban it from Canada's 5G networks within 30 days. Uh, meanwhile, you have a, a column out today that talks about how there are calls to have Canada boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics, which are scheduled for Beijing in China. Um so, first of all, on the motion, do you think that that will have any effect? Will Is the government, which has been putting off making a decision, other countries have already decided to ban Huawei, is the government going to make that kind of decision soon? Well, it's kind of strange that they haven't already. I mean, there's obviously a lot of pressure coming from the U.S. The, the big telcos have already said they're not going to use Huawei. So it's a bit of an academic point whether Trudeau comes out and says anything or not. I guess that's probably why he hasn't done so. It would it would aggravate the Chinese at a time when we're still trying to get our, our detainees released, and it probably wouldn't change anything because none of the companies are intending to use Huawei. In fact, they're stripping Huawei gear out of their 4G networks. So it's it's a bit of a redundant point. At the same time, the, mo the more general theme of the the motion was that that uh, the Liberal government has to take more aggressive action on China, which seems to be. Uh, you know, using influence to uh, threatening Canadian citizens with intimidation for family members back in China if they speak out about the regime. So it's it's active in Canada. It seems to be our, uh, the the, uh, the electronic spy agency came out yesterday and said state-sponsored actors are trying to infiltrate our, our uh, critical infrastructure, including our electricity system. And we're kind of standing idly by with our ambassador in China saying we should get... Uh, have closer ties with China, which seems counterintuitive at a time when we were uh, figuratively under attack by the Chinese. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Conservative motion also called on the government to come up with a plan on how to, to protect Canada and Canadians, and to do so within 30 days. Uh, the motion was supported by the NDP and the Bloc and by five Liberal MPs, which um, clearly puts pressure on Justin Trudeau within his own caucus. The plan to come up with a, uh, an up-to-date China policy has been in the works for a year. It's not clear why it's been delayed, although I hear whispers that there are top public servants who don't want to take draconian action on China. They think everything should be done uh, more calmly and 
that uh, Xi Jinping will be under pressure internally and where they will therefore moderate his behaviour. Uh, that may be wishful thinking. The Conservatives have up the ante yet again by suggesting we boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, pointing out that if Canada has any leverage, it might be in when it comes to Winter Olympics. So there is a head of steam building here, and I don't think that Justin Trudeau can ignore it. His, his, I think his China policy has been pretty incoherent over the last four or five years. You know, I was in Beijing when they went there, when we went and tried to, to launch free trade talks. I mean, we're a long, long way from there. And I don't think the government policy has caught up with the, with the changing in circumstances. Yeah, and do you uh, do you think a boycott would be a, an effective signal? Do, do you think it would have any impact if Canada were to do that? Well, I don't think it would help release the two Michaels, which is our sort of primary goal. I think it could be provocative and could be counterproductive. Olympic Games are designed to bring countries closer together. This would clearly push countries further apart. I don't think it is a replacement for a, for a well-thought-out China policy. And that's really what we're lacking at the moment. I mean, there, there needs to be a, a, a better response, for example, to the to the provocation of uh, against Canadian citizens. I mean, Australia, for example, has got a watchdog body that looks over what the China is doing in Australia. And I think something similar would, would be good here. Another area, elite capture is, a, is, a, is an area of concern where the Chinese government pay, play, pays what's been described as life-changing amounts of money to influential people, including former politicians. And that is, I am told, happening in Canada, where people are coming out of government, coming out of senior positions, and being hired to push China's light. There is no disclosure requirement in Canada, as there is in the U.S., so we don't know who those people are, although I've got a reasonable idea who some of them are. And I think that should be part of any kind of response that we're aware of who's selling us a bill of goods if, if they're being paid to do so. All right, let's turn to a controversy closer to home, and that is uh, uh, Andrew Shear employing members of his family in his office over the past few years. And there seems to be... Uh, some divided opinion among conservatives about whether or not this was appropriate and acceptable. Most of, of them see, seem to be saying that uh, that this is a practice that should not be allowed, but Candace Bergen, the deputy conservative leader, said there wasn't really anything wrong with it. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, uh, this, um, on this split in the conservative caucus and, and also just on the practice itself? Well, I don't, it's kind of unusual that the deputy would come out and say something different than the, than the new leader, but um, you know, I'm sure they'll figure that one out between themselves. She was correct in saying it is not against the rules. I mean, the Ethics Commissioner looked at this, and there is no rule that says you can't employ your sister-in-law, although there isn't a, a rule that says you can't employ your sister, which Andrew Shearer actually did for many years, even when he was Speaker of the House of Commons, employed his sister at taxpayers' expense. When the rule changed... He went off and worked for a Conservative senator instead. But he replaced, if not directly replaced her, he certainly then hired his sister-in-law at taxpayers' expense. You know, neither is a good look. And so there's, I guess there's a, a in the minds of politicians, there's a, there is a conflict of interest, as per the rules, and then a perceived conflict of interest. Clearly, the sister-in-law did not pass the perceived conflict of interest rule because uh, she has now asked her to leave once the issue has been made public. So I do, I do think there's a, a problem here. I mean, I, I, it's, 
clearly not quite analogous to the case where the Liberal MP uh, Yasmin Ratanzi uh, was forced to leave the Liberal caucus because she actually was still employing her sister even after the rule changed. Right. And it became prohibited. And, and trying to mislead people about it, it, it appears, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, it was a bit more clear-cut than, than the Shear case. But, you know, I mean, I think the fact that Andrew Shear even went to the Ethics Commissioner to ask if it was okay meant, meant he thought it, it might not be, in which case he probably shouldn't have done it in the first place. People get disillusioned and cynical about politicians because they they feel they're always on the take, and I don't think that that's, this, even if it wasn't within the rules, necessarily goes against that perception. Yeah. All right, let's talk about where we stand with the coronavirus pandemic. The health minister is facing questions about why Canada hasn't approved a home testing kit yet. Uh, We have seen a rise in cases in the last week or two across the country in different parts of the country and calls for more of uh, a clampdown on uh, more restrictions on on people's movements. Uh, Where do you think we stand at the moment and and what are the next critical steps while everybody crosses their fingers for a a vaccine to arrive early next year? Well, I guess that was the good news. I mean, let's start with the good news is that that, uh, Ontario and other provinces were saying that they expect to see vaccine landing in uh, in early 2021. Ontario said that doses of the Pfizer vaccine as well as the Moderna vaccine are destined for Ontario in uh, in January. So obviously they still need to receive Health Canada approval, but assuming they do, uh, the vaccine is, is on its way. But in the meantime, things are starting to look pretty grim. I mean, it does sound like Toronto and Peel region are heading towards another lockdown. I think uh, Ontario is going to make an announcement on Friday. So it looks like... Um, you know, things are getting pretty grim in Ontario. We know that they're getting, that they're grim in, in Quebec and in Manitoba and even in the, in the Atlantic provinces. And none of it, which have been pretty lightly hit to this point, I mean, none of it has now got uh, sort of 10, 10 new cases on Wednesday. That takes it up to 70, which in a small population is a pretty dramatic rise. Even Atlantic Canada, nine new cases in New Brunswick, three in Nova Scotia, two in Newfoundland and Labrador. Again, small numbers, but these places have been pretty immune to now, so it just shows how how bad things have been getting. Premier John Horgan in, in British Columbia yesterday called for a pan-Canadian approach to limit non-essential travel. Uh, there is not a non-essential travel ban in BC, but there's not a travel ban affecting people coming into the province at the moment. Certainly, you know, people are, can, can travel pretty freely between, let's say, Ottawa and and, uh, and Calgary. Uh, it may well be that there becomes becomes tighter restrictions on internal travel within Canada before too long. So, you know, it, we are, you know, I, I take some encouragement from the fact that one of our top epidemiologists last week said pandemics have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We're very much in the middle right now, and, yeah. and things are still getting worse. But there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not necessarily a train coming towards us. It does look like the, the, the second wave will will break, and then... We've got a vaccine to look forward to. So uh, people, I guess, have just got to buckle, uh, knuckle under and buckle down and get through this. All right. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. I can't stress this enough. The situation is extremely, extremely serious. Right now, we're staring down the barrel of another lockdown. 
Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Robin Urbach argues, with vaccines on the horizon, lockdown suddenly becomes more palatable. Urbach writes, The promise of a vaccine on the horizon may provide a fresh tool for political leaders to convince COVID-fatigued citizens to lock down once more. This time, the lockdown won't be forever. There is an end in sight. Canadians will have to trust that these vaccines are indeed effective and will make it to market, and that our governments can competently see to their efficient and equitable distribution. We just have to hold out for a little bit longer. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues, failures on test and trace undermine the goal of COVID-0. The Star writes, Politicians and public health experts spent the summer telling us that the key to keeping the virus under control was a system of testing and tracing so that outbreaks could be quickly identified. But the system wasn't up to the challenge and fell far short. Certainly, too many people have ignored public health guidance and exposed all of us to needless risk. That's completely unacceptable. But governments have also fallen far short of what they promised to do. At Policy Magazine, Mustafa Askari and Kevin Page argue the federal government must present a fiscal plan for the post-COVID economy. They write, The government has argued that in the midst of a pandemic, it is not ready to set a fiscal anchor for the medium-term planning framework. But we face enormous uncertainty due to the unpredictability of the pandemic and vaccine timeline. Eschewing the discussion of a long-term fiscal plan with budgetary constraints will only add to that uncertainty. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. A demonstration and tribute happened today on Parliament Hill in honour of a group of Canadians especially hard hit by the pandemic. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, starting at 11.30 on the lawn of Parliament Hill, a group of concerned Canadians will lay out thousands of pairs of empty shoes. They'll be holding a demonstration called Broken Hearts, Empty Shoes. Its goal is to draw attention to the fate of hundreds of thousands of long-term care residents across the country. Among those taking part in this vigil will be the relatives of Canadian seniors who have perished, victims of COVID-19 infection or complications caused by the pandemic as it ravaged the country's long-term care homes. Also taking part will be lawyers representing families of some of those Canadians who've launched class action suits against companies who run the homes. Canada has one of the worst records of the developed countries, having seen about 80% of our COVID-19 deaths occurring in long-term care and seniors' homes. As the second wave of the pandemic hits its full stride, the death rates in those same homes is rising steadily again. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will deliver remarks at the APEC CEO Dialogues and participate in a live question-and-answer session. He will then make an announcement with the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of Canadian Heritage, Stephen Gilbeau, and the Minister of Infrastructure, Catherine McKenna. Finally, the Prime Minister will meet with opposition leaders and participate in a COVID-19 briefing with the Chief Public Health Officer and Deputy Chief Public Health Officer of Canada. Senior government officials from Environment and Climate Change Canada will hold a technical briefing on the government's commitment to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. And small business minister Mary Ng will take part in a virtual fireside chat at an event to mark Women's Entrepreneurship Day. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, November the 19th. Tune into Primetime Politics on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.